feminist movement has given birth to many things. One of these is the popularization of gender, a concept that drives a wedge between sexed identity and embodiment. These words are written by Abigail Favalli in the autobiographical chapter simply entitled Heretic in her new book, The Genesis of Gender, A Christian Theory. Abigail's personal story and thoughtful book on the gift of our embodiment as male and female is a must-read for anyone hoping to lead kids through the current muddied and confused cultural narrative on sex and gender. I invite you to listen into this conversation with Abigail Favalli on this episode of Youth Culture Matters. From the Center for Parent Youth Understanding, this is Youth Culture Matters. If you're a parent, youth worker, educator, counselor, grandparent, or anyone else who cares about kids, we're glad you've joined us for this practical, informative, and hope-filled podcast. This is a place where together we talk and think Christianly about the rapidly changing world of today's children, teens, and young adults. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of Youth Culture Matters. I'm Walt Mueller here at the Center for Parent Youth Understanding. We've got a great conversation and interview today on a topic that is uh, front and center in our culture, and it's been heating up for a while, and it's one that in the world of parenting and youth ministry and church ministry, we need to take seriously. We, we have to make sure that we've examined um, what, what the Lord's will and way is on matters of sexuality and gender. And to do that, we're going to have a conversation today with Dr. Abigail Favalli. Before I go to her and introduce her, I want to welcome my friend Ben Jepson, who's joining us from Grand Forks, British Columbia. Ben is uh, someone who's been involved in youth ministry. I got to know Ben a few years ago in our youth culture class. I was teaching up there for the Coalition for Youth Ministry Excellence. And this last year, as I taught the class, Ben was in the classroom as a teaching assistant for me. And as we got chatting about uh, ministry, we started talking about the particular book and the work we're going to talk about today. And so I thought it'd be great to have Ben on. Ben, thanks for jumping in. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. It's cool. And as I mentioned, our guest is Dr. Abigail Favalli. She is at the University of Notre Dame in the McGrath Institute for Church Life. She's a writer and a professor. I do want to hear a little more about your writing because I think you've written some fiction, which I'm not familiar with. But the book that really sparked our interest here is one called The Genesis of Gender, A Christian Theory. This was published in 2022 by Ignatius Ignatius Press. It's been translated into multiple languages. I heard about it in an email from Carl Truman who said, you need to read this book because he knows what we've been doing here at CPYU. And then as I was pondering, uh, actually kind of dropped the ball, didn't get the book, I read two reviews, um, one in Touchstone Magazine uh, that was written by Hans Borsma that was really good. He calls your book, Abigail, a page-turner. And then I also read one in First Things by Mary Harrington, and she says this is uh, a book on the central cultural struggle of the early 21st century. So, Abigail, thanks for writing the book, and thanks for joining us. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So I want to ask you right out of the gate, uh, because your story is, is so compelling, and you tell the story in the book. And it's interesting to me because the story really adds so much to it. I, I, I like to say people like you have street cred uh, because you've lived this, you've thought about this, you've kind of been across the the spectrum ideologically in terms of what you've been thinking. I think of other friends we have and have had on here like Rosaria Butterfield and Christopher Yuan who have street cred as well. Um, they're writing about things that are very personal uh, personal for them, and I think the stories are compelling. So I want to ask you about your story, and I'll, I'll start. I just want to throw this in. The dedication of the book is just, I, I landed on it again today. You write, for our sons and daughters, may they know their true worth. So I'd love to hear about the dedication, and then a bit about your story, how you got to the point where you wrote what you wrote in the Genesis of Gender. Hmm. Um, sure. So I mean, the dedication, I think, um, I, it's interesting when you write, when you do the process of writing a book, it's like the last thing that you write almost, you know? And I think by the time I got to the point of writing a dedication, um, you know, I, I think I 
<clears throat> one of the things I hope with the book, maybe one of the key messages of it is um, to, to really embrace one's body as a gift and to realize how our creatureliness is a good thing and our sexual nature is a good thing and that these are gifts from our creator and that we live in a culture right now that um, tries to put us at enmity with ourselves in really profound ways, especially young people. Um, and I think there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, uh, of, of money that can be made. The, the less happy we are with ourselves and the more we, we are kind of um, not working from a sense of intrinsic worth, but are, but are kind of seeking to kind of curate an identity that will somehow become worthy. Um, so to rather start from the beginning and realize you are already worthy just as you are. Um, that's sort of what the dedication is about. Um, yeah, but my my story, just to give, I'll give a little sketch of it, and then you can ask me to elaborate on any point that you might want to dig into. So I was raised Christian. I was raised in a, an evangelical, non-denominational tradition, and I became really interested in questions related to womanhood, probably as a teenager and certainly as an incoming college student. And I went to a Christian college, and I felt I was really wrestling with it, wanting, I guess, to understand a sense of like my own worth as a woman specifically. Like, what is my worth before God as a woman? Um, and I wasn't finding a lot of good answers or a lot of satisfying answers. In fact, it wasn't even so much that I was finding unsatisfying answers. It's just no one was really talking about it that much. Um, and then it, it, through the course of my studies, I discovered feminist thought, especially feminist theology and feminist biblical criticism. And I just really embraced that. I thought, this is what I've been looking for. This will provide me with the kind of answer to these questions that I find so deeply important. Um, and and the further I went into feminist thought, um, the more I gradually absorbed what I call in the book, just for simplicity's sake, kind of a postmodern worldview um, that eventually kind of displaced my Christian faith. And um, I I really would, I would say that postmodern feminism became my religion in many ways. And that's what I am uh, focused on in graduate school throughout my twenties. Um, and, you know, I really became a card carrying kind of postmodern progressive feminist during those times, even though I still considered myself a Christian, there wasn't really any um, confessional or even practical content to it. Um, and then at the end of my 20s, I had a pretty profound return to Christianity, this time in the Catholic tradition. And so since then, I've been trying to engage with my insider knowledge of gender theory and feminist theory to help other Christians better understand some of the cultural developments we're seeing, especially around gender in our time. And so that's what kind of brought me to writing the, the book. Mm. Can I ask you your upbringing, and and I don't know a whole lot about this. So, in terms of your relationship with growing up in an evangelical Christian church, was it just that there was nothing compelling about evangelical theology, or was it a combination of that plus the um, inability of or the lack of the church even addressing these issues regarding the questions you had? just about faith and what it means to be a woman. I think in, in my, in my own experience, um, women just weren't talked about that much. Um, so they were kind of on the sidelines and, and there was almost like a tension or contradiction between what I saw in scripture. Cause I, I, I became really interested in women's stories in scripture, especially in the old Testament. So I've really absorbed those and re read and reread those, um, there are just so many interesting, compelling stories about women throughout scripture. But then I never actually heard a sermon about a woman like ever. Right. So there just wasn't, there wasn't this sense. I mean, and if, if womanhood was brought up, it would, the, the conversation would immediately go to roles. Like we only talk about women when we're kind of talking about chore lists. Um, so there wasn't like, I think I've been preoccupied with the question of being rather yeah, than doing yeah. like, what does it really mean to be a woman? And like, why, why did God create male and female? Like God, why, why did the creator even dream up women? You know, what is, and so I had a sense that there was like something more, there was this deep kind of intrinsic significance to that. Um, 
And I would say that in my, I don't, I don't think I really had much of a, I think my, um, my experience growing up was very atheological and ahistorical. Um, so I don't know that I really encountered much theology about women, except maybe in college, um, when I began to read a little bit more of theology specifically, but by then I was really kind of interested more in the kind of feminist theological perspective. Yeah. So when you were in middle school and high school, uh, I'm assuming you were involved in the church then. were you involved in a youth group? I was, I was involved in a youth group. I mean, I grew up in a kind of a weird, a weird little situation. Um, I grew up in very small rural places in the Intermountain West in predominantly Mormon areas. So the Christian communities were very small. Um, and Growing up in a Mormon context is interesting because it's very hard to be accepted socially if you're not Mormon, because Mormonism is such a social religion. There's so much about it that's embedded in the church. And it's harder, especially for girls, because um, it's easier for guys convert more easily, but girls don't. So if you're if you're a non-Mormon girl, then you're kind of more iced out socially and you know, you're not, no one's supposed to date you and things like that. So it was a very isolating environment in terms um, of my own faith. So I kind of had this pattern of in the summers, I would, you know, be sent off to camps or mission trips or something. And then I would have like these really intense experiences with other Christians and be like, Oh, this is amazing. And then that would slowly kind of dwindle as I went back to my very kind of isolated, alienated place where I felt really alone as a Christian and also my engage with my faith more defensively than really like developing it. Um, so there, there was youth group, but you know, there just wasn't, yeah. you know, there'd be like four kids in it, <laughs> you know, yeah. like there just wasn't a lot of, and I just remember like icebreakers and that's kind of it. Like there just yeah. wasn't a lot of the, the re yeah, the reason I asked that question is, you know, going back, like when we see where we're at today and, and why, how we've gotten to where we're at, why we need a corrective like you've helped us embrace, or I hope that folks embrace when they read the genesis of gender, is that there's so much that should have been addressed in our churches and in our youth groups by our leaders, and those things were not. And I know because, you know, I'm older and I was involved in youth ministry for a long time. And there were certain things I did and there were certain things I didn't do or didn't address that I have regrets now going back. And certainly a more robust, um, you know, biblical anthropology, I guess, where we begin to understand who we are and the creational intent of God and and the narrative and the, the overarching drama of Scripture, you know, the history of redemption. Um it, we just don't address it. So with those bits and pieces, I think that's what one reason why now we need to correct it. So when I talk to someone like you, what I hope that really sparks for people is, oh, yeah, so w we need to talk about these things. We need to talk about these things from the time, um, you know, from the time our kids are young. Could you, in your story, it was quite compelling, and I know Ben's going to want to chime in here at, at some point, so just jump in, Ben. Um, I've got a thousand things on my mind I want to ask. But it was quite compelling when you got to that point in your story where you're actually teaching your students feminist theory and you, you start to feel a bit um, duplicitous, I guess. Uh, your conscience starts to bother you. Talk a little bit about that. That seems like a like a like just a crazy watershed moment for you. Yeah, so that was kind of amidst my return to Christianity and... Um, gradually having this cognitive dissonance or this kind of sense of of conflict about the way I had been approaching teaching, and this would be at the college level. Um, and, you know, realizing that I had been, in my attempt to kind of be this like neutral, objective teacher figure, um, I had been kind of transmitting an implicit worldview, even though I was in a Christian context, I was teaching in a Christian school, and I would raise questions of faith, you know, the, there seemed to be more of an emphasis among the more kind of progressive leaning faculty that we want to kind of, that educating these students will be about disorienting them from some of their naivete, right? So we want them to be critical thinkers. We want them to 
um, be more nuanced and sophisticated to ask questions rather than have these kind of simplistic answers, right? But there wasn't really as much of an emphasis on like reorientation. Okay, well, what are we orienting them towards? Are we just doing this kind of disruptive education, right? This kind of unsettling and it didn't really have like a clear tell us. It didn't really have like a clear goal or a very clearly articulated worldview. And that's, I think the, the really main thing is that, um, and by articulated, I mean that you are conscious of the worldview in which you are inhabiting and from which you approach everything. Like, you know what your premises and your underlying assumptions are about reality. Things like, is there a creator? Is there not a creator? right? Like, what are we made for? Are we made for a particular purpose? Um, does, you know, <clears throat> does a uh, morality exist, right? Like all these, all these sorts of questions. And when I returned to Christianity and began to enter into a more coherent worldview, I began to see that the, the way in which I had been teaching, you know, kind of undermined that. And, yeah, it really, it was, it was like a really unpleasant time, I think, um, to, to feel like I, I think I have not been doing my students a, a good service in, in letting in, yeah, and not letting, like guiding them into these deeper questions of, of worldview, instead, almost like giving them this kind of buffet, like, here's a buffet of things, let's sample it and talk about it, you know, but never actually get to that higher and more important level of like, well, is any of this true? Yeah, I, and that's I, that's I, when. Sorry, yeah, that's yeah. when you like uh, jumped into your colleague's office, right? To go, ah, you know, I'm I'm freaking mm -hmm. out here a little bit with all this. Yeah, is I'm I'm very curious on in that journey too for you is, you know, in a way I think you said it really nicely, but you know the church kind of failed uh, in your upbringing in in this sort of way with defining you know what does it mean to be a woman and and how the bible defines that what um if you feel free to talk about this what was that like even in your home um with your parents and and things like that and, and upbringing in that area um around that topic uh you mean growing up like around yeah. those questions yeah um yeah i mean i think a big piece of my upbringing as well is that it it was very in some ways it was very moralistic like it, in some ways christianity's was reduced to kind of a moral system of rules and i didn't have a, a sense of like the why behind those rules it, it rather seemed more like here's a rule that we get from the bible don't cross that rule you know and if you do you know especially when it comes to things like sexuality you know, I grew up in kind of the heyday of what's often called as purity culture, you know, in evangelicalism. So that was really, you know, that was kind of the vision of sexuality I was given was this like, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. Except when you're married, you can do all of it. And then it was, <laughs> that's kind of it. Like, well, what is the meaning of sexuality? Like, yeah. what, you know, what is the deeper significance here? Like, what are we being called toward? Like, what's the positive vision? It's not just this kind of negative vision. Um yeah, and so I think that was definitely true within the home as well. But the the kind of gender roles were not, those were, you know, and, and in practice, so in practice, I would see in evangelical couples, often a clear kind of mutuality. It wasn't this like overbearing hierarchy where the, the guy was always the boss. But then the articulation of gender roles was like that. And so I also saw a tension there, right? Like marriage lived out, you know, didn't seem to be this like really kind of complementarian hierarchy. But whenever we ever everyone talked about roles between men and women, it was pretty rigid and hierarchical. So I think I just was like, what's going on here? You know, I think I was just confused by um and it and it seemed to be much more rules-based than um then arising from a coherent vision of the whole, yeah. right? Like there That's are reasons good. why we, I guess maybe maybe another way of putting it is that like the church's no is always in service of her yes. And the yes is always greater, right? And the yes is always connecting to this overarching vision of the, the story of human redemption um, mm -hmm. and also this kind of sacramental understanding of, of all of reality. But if we just 
skip all of that and focus just on the nose, then you you kind of fall into this this moralism and this legalism um, that I just, I don't, you know, I think it doesn't do justice to what Christianity actually is. Yeah. You know, yeah. You, and if, go ahead, Ben. Sorry, Walt, I keep stepping on you. If, uh, if it was confusing for you growing up, then it sh- certainly hasn't gotten any better now. Uh, and, and, and this whole conversation in my mind, I'm thinking of youth leaders, I'm thinking of youth ministry, but I'm also thinking of my own daughter. Cause I have an eight year old daughter, you know? And so, boy, I've got lots of questions and stuff there, uh, within there, but anyway, yeah, thanks. Thanks for jumping in on that. Um, and sharing a bit of that, um, Walt, sorry. Yeah. You, I was just going to say, you know, as I listen to Abigail, as I listen to you talk about this, you know, I, I think back in my own life and, and. And, you know, nobody, I think everybody here would agree that n- nobody was, everyone was well-intentioned. No one was trying to undermine right. any sort of advancement of the gospel or biblical truth. It was well-intentioned, but incredibly ignorant. And and I think in so many, and, and by the way, I raise my hand as being, you know, guilty towards that. That's part of being a parent when your kids are finally grown up and you're looking at your grandkids, going, all right, I'm going to get it right this time around. But, you know, well-intentioned, but a lot of ignorance. But I, I, I think that, um, you know, part, and I want to get into this after the break, part of the corrective, I think a big part of the corrective that, Abigail, you put forward in this book, and I really want to get into this, to some of just, a, I think, you know, skewed thinking we have in the culture at large and then also in the church about sexuality and gender, and especially in this moment where we're, you know, basically saying, I'm going to choose who I am. It's a choice, not a given. And um, I think I think some of this is that, that in the church I see people sort of overcorrecting from what you just described from your growing up over to now. I'm not going to, I don't want to mess kids up. I don't want to not show compassion. I'm going to agree with their self-assessment. You know, I have to be, you know, super compassionate. And we have to have compassion, obviously. And you you talk about that later in the book with love and truth. But there comes a point where when we're misleading and we're not listening to truth, I go back to what Ben said about your interaction with your older colleague at the college you were teaching at, because that what he said was really brilliant. Um, I, can I read that? Just what he what mm-hmm. you what you this is what this is how we respond. You said you went in and said, I feel like I've been giving my students poison to drink. And you said, for so many years, I'd been careless, careless with their minds and most disturbingly their souls. And then the professor listened to you, as was his way. And then he said this in his Appalachian drawl. You know that verse in Matthew, the one that says that if anyone causes the little ones to stumble, it would be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the sea? He says, I've always thought it would be a good idea for us professors to have that tattooed on our arms. Man, when I read that, I thought, I don't have any tattoos. But as a youth worker, that'd be a good one to get. And I think youth workers need to get that. And parents as well. I mean, just that what a what a moment, you know, to hear that. And so we're we're gonna take a break, but when we come back, I, I wanna come back and talk about the content of what you've written here because it just is so important and so helpful and it uh, helps us avoid the millstone. Uh, an overcorrection, even if that overcorrection is well-intentioned. So we're going to take a break. We'll come back and continue our conversation with Dr. Abigail Favalli. If you enjoy listening to Youth Culture Matters and would like to support the ongoing efforts of this ministry, you can do so by visiting cpyu.org giving to make a donation. Your prayers and financial support make this podcast possible. Well, welcome back. We're continuing our conversation with Abigail Favalli. She teaches at the University of Notre Dame. She's written a book called The Genesis of Gender. I do want to ask you, at Notre Dame, I see that you are at the McGrath Institute for Church Life. What, do you, what is that? What do you folks do there? Sure. Yeah. So the McGrath Institute is an institute at the University of Notre Dame that um, is more of an outward facing institute. So it's an outreach institute that seeks to bridge the academy with the church as a whole. 
And so we have all kinds of different initiatives in the Institute that um, are programs, for example, that try to provide formation for lay leaders in the church. We have a program for youth ministers, for example. Um, <clears throat> and we're just, we're trying to bring kind of the, the substance of what can happen in the academy doesn't always happen, but what can happen in academic conversations to actually bear practically on the living life of the church. Yeah, well, that's good. That's what we're trying to do here. So this, mm-hmm. this is good for the sake of our conversation. So you write in the book a bit about um, how we've evolved as a culture at the, at the level of thought, philosophy, so forth and so on. Uh, how we've evolved as, at, as a culture at our understanding of gender, things that have sort of undermined uh, the way that maybe we used to think, and probably there were things that had to change. But how, um, you know, can you explain a little bit of that? Like what's happened culturally, mm-hmm. philosophically, historically? You write about this a lot with feminism and the different waves mm-hmm. of feminism. And then after explaining that, um, that's how we got to where we're at. Where are we? And I'm especially interested in talking a bit about the transgender issue because that's just a, such a big deal right now in our culture. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. So a big part of the book is giving an account of the genesis of gender in the sense of how did the concept of gender arise? What's its origins? Um, and so I I trace kind of the more or less linear history and I describe, I guess I would say a twofold revolution, one being a conceptual revolution. So kind of a a shift in how we think about gender philosophically, theologically, but that's also tied up in a technological revolution because I think one thing that's really important to realize is that the way gender has evolved and continues to evolve in real time is driven, I would say, as much by technologies than it is by concepts. Like there's definitely kind of a feedback loop going on there. Um, But contemporary gender theory really arose out of feminist theory. Um, So in the book, I give Um, an overview of the various waves of feminism. But I think where it begins to become most relevant conceptually is in second wave feminism, where you get this framing of gender as something that's distinct from sex. So in this framing, this kind of second wave feminist framing, sex refers to biology, but gender refers to the kind of social norms and ideals that a given culture attaches to sex. So it's from this framing that you get the pretty common phrase, gender is a social construct, right? So that's that's kind of the basic sex-gender split. Sex is biology, gender is is social. And also oppressive. That's important to realize that in feminist theory, gender isn't this like liberating, you know, source of a wonderful epiphany. It's like this kind of patriarchal social construct that keeps women down. So the the goal is almost to you want to overthrow gender norms. and this this develops or um, kind of develops in a different direction in the 90s through the philosophy of Judith Butler, who really ups the ante of social constructionism. And she basically argues that sex itself is a construction of society. So our tendency to categorize human beings according to this binary of male and female is actually kind of a story we've created and are pro- we're projecting that onto the kind of complex the complexity of the the human experience. So in other words, for Butler, everything's gender, even sex, everything's the social construct. But again, for Butler, she sees this as, as oppressive. You know, she, she sees it as something that should be interrogated, overthrown. Right. And so it's really interesting to me that in, I don't know, the early 2010s, we see this kind of new understanding of gender beginning to bubble up which actually seems to see gender as not so much a construct, but this inner sense of self, this this kind of core identity of the self that is not something that should be overthrown, but something that should be discovered and celebrated, right? Um, That's not extrinsic, but intrinsic to the self, that's liberatory, and that's deeply authentic, not superficial. So this is actually a very different concept than what you see in feminist thought and through Judith Butler, But what I think has happened is that you have the kind of 
anti-realism, the kind of postmodern anti-realism that flows through feminist thought that is really trying to reduce sexual difference to something created by society. Like this isn't something real, it's just a social construct, right? So that kind of gets us to be suspicious of sex itself. But then in its place, this kind of new realism has like bubbled up from um, primarily, I think, through social media. Um, and now we have the concept of gender identity, especially as part of popular culture and youth culture. So it's this like mutation of the kind of Butlerian gender theory, um, but that actually posits almost this new understanding of gender that is um, that is gender identity, right? Which is how how we how we kind of talk about or young people, especially how they talk about it now, where this is like a deep truth about yourself that you have to kind of contemplate and then realize and then express and that is who you truly are and if it's in tension with your body then the body needs to be brought in line with that with that understanding so um that's kind of a a little bit of a a sketch of kind of how we've come to this concept of gender let me let me ask this uh the phrase gender identity and i've read a bit about you know dr john money uh, down at Hopkins and his work, uh, which is actually quite frightening. I just I just picked up an older copy of the book he wrote about uh, the Rhymer boy, who yeah. you know had the botched circumcision, and then you know he jumps in, John Money jumps in, and almost in a it's almost like reading about Frankenstein in some ways, you know, says, well, let's just perform some surgery, convinces his parents, let's just perform some surgery. And he can, you know, grow up identifying as female, be fully female, that sort of thing. And, you know, the end of the story is as horrifying as the beginning when eventually as a, as a grown man he takes his own life. But um, it's un, unimaginable in so many ways. But I've read that, um, that term gender identity or gender as an identity, a lot of that is rooted or became much more popularized as a part of John Money's work and his thinking. Mm -hmm. Is that accurate? Yeah, so he's John Money is the the first person to really he didn't coin the term gender yeah. identity, but he did I think coin the term gender role and he popularized this concept of gender identity, um, and that kind of ongoing experiment that you talk about on the Rhymer twins because he had this theory that gender is entirely a product of social construction. So you could like we're kind of blank slates. You could take a baby and then you know. Enculturate them. them to a particular kind of gender, regardless of their sex. That was his theory. So he tested it out on these on these twin boys. Two disastrous results, right? As you said. Um, but it took so long for that tragedy to play out, right? He began seeing the Reimer twins in the 60s. They both end up dying, by the way, one by suicide, one by a self-inflicted overdose. So they actually both take their own lives. But that doesn't happen until the early 2000s. And so in the interim, John Money's really running with this idea of gender as a social construct. Right. That, oh, look, this this experiment has been wildly successful. This male child who was disfigured through circumcision has been successfully raised as a girl and now has this female gender identity. Right. Um, and so I think in the in the kind of history I was describing, his concept of gender really became influential in second wave feminist thought. Again, this idea that um, men like being a man and being a woman in the world, that's a process of a kind of artificial social construction. It's not this, it's not something that is at the level of nature, right? This resist is very much a resistance of um, seeing womanness and manness as being natural categories. If I'm, if I'm a parent uh, or I'm a youth worker in today's world and suddenly a student who I know and who I have a relationship with, you know, my own child or someone else is in the youth group and they come to me and again in the context of relationship where I can pretty much push back and say anything and they start to talk in terms of gender identity and it seems like they're buying into this whole idea and this whole notion uh, whether it's in support of others or perhaps in their own life in terms of making some decisions about who they are right or who they're going to be and they use that phrase gender identity, how would you recommend that we respond? And, I, and I'm, I'm thinking here being very forthright with someone that you know and love and they know mm -hmm. that you love them. 
right? We're going to tell the truth, obviously, in all situations. But um, give us a give us a script for how you would handle that. A script? Oh, yeah. I I wish I had scripts. Yeah, maybe great. an unfair question, but you no, know, give us some I mean, pointers. I, so, so I think there's there's kind of I don't know maybe two, at least there's two levels that we have to sort of respond here. I guess there's there's the level of formation of formators, right? So parents and youth ministers, especially as we're talking, um, the, we need formation on this issue. So in some ways, my work is an attempt to form the formators, right? So that one, formators can have a sense of clarity about where these words and I and these ideas and these concepts come from some of the deep kind of inconsistencies and incoherencies in these concepts. In other words, hopefully as kind of an inoculation against like adopting them in a naive way, right? Or, um, and not, so there's that level, right? Which is kind of clarity. Right, and, um, and just what you just said, yeah. adopting them in a naive way. Like you talk about mm -hmm. Judith Butler. Um, I hear people like you who who have you know you're you're diving deep into theory and history. You know Judith Butler, mm -hmm. and you can yeah. you can talk about Judith Butler and others. Most who embrace Judith Butler's ideas have no idea who she is or that she even existed. Exactly. We just, yeah, yeah. So that's that's what you're talking about there with being yes. naive. This is the importance of knowing the history of ideas. So yeah, I love mm -hmm. that you say that. Right. Yeah. So I think there there has to be a kind of clarity and formation on that level. But then when it comes to actually the practical level, which I think is more difficult, you know, I think the pastoral level is is much trickier. Um, then I think, you know, there, you almost have to like listen behind the script. Like, so you kind of need, you need to learn the script. You need to learn the kind of terminologies and categories and concepts that young people are now using to articulate their experiences and their sense of self. But then you kind of need to listen past the script when you're actually talking to an individual because what they're naming when they choose a particular label or when they use the phrase gender identity, they're trying to articulate some aspect of their experience. But it's not entirely clear until you really talk to that individual what they're saying, right? So you could have a young person who says, oh, I identify as non-binary. Well, you don't really know what that even means until you actually talk to that. You know, maybe what they're saying through that through that word is that, you know, they really just want to belong to a, to, you know, a tribe that uses that word they want to fit in. Right. And they might not even say that consciously. Right. But you might pick up on that. It's, this is really about belonging for this person. Then it could be for someone, it might be that they're very gender atypical, you know, maybe it's a girl who's a tomboy and this is, this is comfortable because she feels constricted by, you know, some of the, the stereotypes and is kind of resisting those stereotypes. Right. So that's a very different Kind of experience that's being articulated through that through that term so i think we, we i think we need to like you know avoid maybe two reactive extremes right one one would be just to simply immediately embrace the label and then pair it back you know that to the and there's something like incurious about that approach as well like not that interested in what's actually happening in this young person's heart but they're they're using a script. I'm gonna go along with the script, you know. I'm just going to affirm, not ask questions, you know. And then there's the other, I think, extreme, which would be I'm gonna like push back hard, you know, and I'm gonna kind of shut this down immediately, say, you know, well, I don't use that terminology, blah, blah, blah. And then that can really backfire because, you know, there even though there's there's something problematic about the framework, you know, that that this young person has been kind of ushered into. Nonetheless, this young person is still saying something about who they are and where they're at, you know, and that needs to be met with reverence, I think, and received in a certain way. Um, so I think, I think we have to sort of listen past the script to understand what's going on um, in a particular young person's heart um, or where or where they are, right? Um, so to maybe not overly focus on these concepts, but in some ways try to get around them. <laughs> you know, um, and not to get super hung up on them. So that's just an initial thought. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's good. I, a couple of things that we've talked about here are just, you know, your initial shock, right? I mean, if it comes out of the blue, especially with rapid onset gender dysphoria, Abigail Schreier's written about this. Kids come home, typically girls, middle school age, maybe a little bit older, 
and it's probably trending younger now as well, but, you know, mom, dad, I'm transgender, I'm going to transition, or, you know, I'm hearing about kids like in fifth grade announcing that they're bisexual. Now, I, that leaves me scratching my head because developmentally, you know, when I was in fifth grade, I didn't even know that I was sexual, let alone, let alone what, you know, flavor of that. And so, uh, and I know a lot of this, as you said earlier about social media technology, um, just the information glut, screen time, that really points kids in, in directions and gives them information, at least terminology, things they can say without even knowing what they mean. But a couple of questions, you know, tell me your story. Um, very calmly ask. I like how you say that. Just, you know, kind of ask questions. Tell me your story. How did you arrive at your conclusions? Ask about terms. You know, what are, what do those terms mean to you? You know, why exactly? You, what does that yeah, mean to you? Yeah. yeah. Why would you? Because I think, and a lot of that's gonna. It's not just gonna clarify, but I think some parents might breathe a sigh of relief, going, "They have no no idea what they're talking no, about." I, you know, I, I, can, yeah. I actually think that is more often the case than you would realize. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, for sure. Yes. So mm-hmm. I love this. I mean, I think this is uh, this is good. Ben, did you want to throw anything in at this point before we break, or another question? Well, perhaps? yeah. I mean. That was I was just gonna make that point too. Uh it's it's confusing uh the terms, um, uh, to trying to figure out to navigate all of this. Like the hardest question I can ask someone right now is like, well, can you define feminism? Can you define what a woman is? Um it, it's hard to do, it seems. Um, never mind, you know, a lot of these terms that we're talking about right now. So I'm just thinking of the parent the youth leader and stuff just trying to navigate this so i mean obviously on the one hand for for parents and youth leaders i mean we really have to make sure we're doing our our studying that we're you know we're doing good reading and and research and a lot of this kind of stuff but as you just said i'm like i wonder how much um our our kids and our students actually fully understand a lot of these terms and and all that kind of stuff and and track with that and so therefore you know obviously i think the conclusion we're starting to work toward is how do we give them, you know, how do we not only know that stuff, but how do we give them, you know, the truth, the clarity of of what the scriptures say about these things and, and how to bring them up? And that's where I'd love to go. Maybe we're, get, we're getting yep. there already, but that's um, that that's that's a big piece, I think, for me is is just just the utter confusion and a lot of this kind of stuff. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, let's pick up on that after the break. That's what I want to finish with, because that's so practical that really is in many ways uh can i use this old cliche the meat and potatoes of the book um which is just so helpful in in helping frame you know the creational narrative uh understanding what it means to be human identity Mm -hmm. all of that as it relates to these issues that we deal with today so stick with us we'll be right back Youth workers, we're thrilled to announce that registration is now open for our second annual Northeast Youth Ministry Summit to be held from March 4 to 7, 2024 in beautiful Ligonier, Pennsylvania. This practical and hope-filled youth ministry training conference is co-sponsored by CPYU and our friends at Reformed Youth Ministries. Our theme this year is Cultivating Wisdom and Discernment. You will experience theologically sound youth ministry training, a great sense of community, rich times of worship, exposure to great resources, and opportunities to grow in your effectiveness at ministering to the emerging generations. Last year's first ever Northeast Youth Ministry Summit was a great time of being equipped, connected, and encouraged. Space is limited, so you will want to register soon. You can learn more, see the schedule, meet the speakers, and register at nymsummit.org. That's nymsummit.org. Well, we're back to finish up our conversation with Dr. Abigail Favalli. She is the author, as I mentioned earlier, of The Genesis of Gender, subtitled A Christian Theory. This book was published last year. And by the way, Chris Wagner will, as he always does, if you're familiar with Youth Culture Matters and how we do things here, will put on our homepage, cpyu.org, underneath the player for this particular episode of the podcast, Links to everything we've talked about here, whether that's research, books, studies. Um, I guess we're going to have a, a link to the University of Notre Dame. That's a first for us here, right? So uh, we'll have that, and you can find out more about the McGrath Institute for Church Life as well and other things, uh, Abigail's other books as well. 
uh, which we have not spent time talking about. But Abigail, in the final few minutes that we have here, you know, if, if the culture's misleading us, we obviously, as followers of Christ, we believe that uh, the scriptures lead us in the right direction, showing us God's will and God's way. God's big yes for sexuality. I know we've mentioned the purity culture a couple of times, and I remember doing youth ministry in the midst of that world where, as I look back, it was more about communicating, much as you said with your early you know, youth group um, experience, uh, moralism, right? Here's the, here's the don'ts. Uh, don't cross this line. And as a result, you know, I think many of us grew up thinking that sexuality, I don't know that we use the word gender, um, but se- certainly when it came to sexuality, you know, it was a big no from God. Like, these aren't things that we talk about. And the way that it was talked about to us or not talked about by our parents left that impression as well. It wasn't done well. So we want to know how to do this well in a way that truly communicates God's good order and design and and celebrates that rather than leaving some impression that these things are, you know, dirty and off limits and we're not to talk about them. So this is this is what your book's about and and it might be an unfair question to say, you know, give us a flyover, but I'm going to ask the unfair question. Give us a flyover that's helpful that just gives us a a good taste and some direction as we finish up here. Yeah, well when I think um about you know, how do we, okay. So one of the challenges I think is that, you know, gender identity theory and this kind of model of understanding gender, it has a very compelling story, right? Especially for young people who are experiencing, you know, a distress or a sense of being discomfort, you know, uncomfortable around other people or with their own body, which are very normal experiences in adolescence, right? Um, but now these experiences are being kind of funneled into this particular framework. But that framework says, you know, there's there's one reason you are in pain. There's a reason you don't feel at home in your body. There's a reason that um, you don't you feel like you don't belong and it's gender. Like if you if you fix this one thing, then you will flourish. You will become who you really are. I mean, that is a really compelling story. Right? Who wouldn't want to believe that story? Um, and I think actually in some ways it's it's trying to meet the same kinds of longings and questions that Christianity seeks to meet, to become who you really are, to find a place of belonging, um, to to feel a sense of like wholeness and healing and integration through Christ, right? So the the problem are not the desires or longings of our young people. The problem is that we have this kind of flawed cultural narrative that's that can't meet them, but is promising to be able to meet them. Um, so we have to respond with our own compelling story, right? We can't just say, no, that's bad. That's dumb. Don't believe those dumb things, <laughs> even though they're dumb. I mean, these ideas are kind of dumb, right? But we can't just go there, okay? We have to offer offer a compelling story. And I think we have to really take seriously the questions and desires and the experiences that young people are trying to articulate through these concepts. Um, and so I do think that like any response, I mean, I think it has to begin, and this is one thing that evangelicals really have always done well. So in some sense, you've got to return to, to that the heart of what evangelicalism is. And that's, you know, everything has to unfold from this encounter with Christ. You have to begin there because that's what you encounter Christ. And then from there, you're kind of ushered into this way of seeing this like vision of the whole. And it's only kind of from that, that you can, I think, begin to respond in a positive way to the call to holiness. Um, That is a pretty high standard. And increasingly, it's like a very different standard than what the world offers. Right. But you can't just jump to that and say, well, here's what you're called to do. Here's what the Bible says. You got to be here. Like that skips the like foundation of even being able to walk toward that in discipleship and that is that encounter with Christ. So I would say prioritize that above everything because I think it's only from that that you can begin to kind of help usher a young person into a different way of seeing. That's one thing I would say. Another thing I would say is that Christianity has a very positive view of the body as a gift and the body as integral to the person. 
you know, all the central Christian mysteries of the faith are intensely bodily, right? We believe in a God who became a body for our sake in order to offer up that body and then raise it from again, right? So the body just comes up all the time, right? So if the body doesn't matter, then Christianity makes zero sense. Um, and this was one of the things that alienated people from Christianity from the beginning. You know, the Greeks were like, oh, the body resurrection, that's weird. No, thanks. Right. So Christianity has always had this kind of countercultural message about the body being good um, and part of how we are made in God's image. And so I think helping young people to accept the gift of their bodies in a culture that is really trying to undermine that and to get them to hate their body, especially young women, I think. Um, and if we shift the ground of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman to embodiment, to being a kind of body that is, you know, has a kind of generative design that's distinct. You know, women have a certain generative design in their body than men, and both are good and both are meaningful and have a sacred significance. Then I think that frees us up a little bit from these, from having a gender that's based on these kind of lists like here's how you know if you're a man or a woman like what colors do you like you know what what products do you like to buy what things do you like to wear you know I, I think in our culture genders become almost this like consumerist aesthetic right um and it's it's kind of being abstracted away from the ground of the body so I think um something especially for parents it would be to have age-appropriate body literacy um, and really prioritize that. You know, it's something I do with my own children. Like I want my children to, to grow up with a very like deep consciousness of their body, their fertility, their potential for motherhood and fatherhood. And that, like, that's the ground of whether they're a boy or a girl, you know, and there's a little more freedom to develop their individuality in terms of what kinds of activities they enjoy or what kind of career they might eventually pursue. Um, cause I think that's one of the critiques you can make of the gender paradigm is that it dismisses the body, it dismisses generativity. And so then the only place to ground gender is in these, these stereotypes, right? Um, which I think sometimes young people are rebelling against, um, and feel constricted by. So there's something I think freeing about the Christian vision there too. Yeah, and, and that's you know that dualism, that that Gnosticism, uh, you know, just a heresy in so many ways. It divides uh, the the material from the immaterial, and certainly how that works out in our bodies. I, you know, it was interesting uh, as I was reading, and I've heard this critique not only from you but from others as well. You know, the whole thing of, well, I'm just not, I'm just not happy with myself, right? And and what kid is right? I mean, what I'm obviously there is legitimate issues related to legitimate gender dysphoria, right? There are there are some mental health concerns with that. But we're talking here in today's setting about the great, great majority of cases where kids come home and make an announcement. And it's almost like, you know, I, I, I grew up before, obviously, before the Internet, before all this crazy stuff. Like, we would try on different selves to walk down the hallway of our middle school, right? The, the way we would yeah. dress or the people we'd hang with. So this has just become another option. And I'm hearing a lot about research that's done on when you throw this out as another option. And then you have professionals in the medical world, um, in the educational system, uh, you mentioned, you know, the pharmaceutical industry. There's so much money to be made in this as well. And even parents who just buy into the narrative and say, well, if you don't, you know, maybe, you know, you're not, you don't feel comfortable in your body. You're transgender. You need to, you need to transition. Let's get you on the fast track. And that seems to be what's happening, um, you know, more and more. But just as you said, to change the narrative and to back up, there are always like you said earlier about knowing the story and asking the questions and how have you come to your conclusions, you know, that whole thing. Peel back the layers. There are things going on underneath. I mean, just a, the, the general adolescent sense to figure out an answer to the question, who am I? And the other question, what do I believe? Uh, you know, what is my worldview? I mean, that's what that's what we're about as Christian parents, and that's what we're about communicating as people in the church. The Scripture speaks to all of that. So, uh, I, I love that you say that rather than, you know, the fast track, oh, well, you know, you're transgender. 
um, you need to you need to transition. So, yeah, I love this. Ben, did you want to follow up with something there? Yeah, I mean, I just I, I also love the you you use the word here discipleship, mm. um, and I'm like, oh, that's that's a big piece I think here because um, I think discipleship happening in the home, but discipleship happening within the church and with a mentor, with uh, the youth leader, all that kind of stuff. That's where I think a lot of the boots on the ground can happen here with um, correcting and training and um, helping bring de proper definitions to these terms. Um, and, and I really think when I'm thinking of, of youth leaders, you know, in America and Canada and stuff like that, it's, it's, yeah, we got to know this stuff, but then we got to really walk alongside probably in small groups, probably even one-on-one -on -one sometimes just to go, okay, let's actually talk through this and where this is going and why do you feel this way and, and so forth. And so I thought that was really helpful. And, um, you know, I, I'm always trying to push the practical, especially when it comes to ministry, you know, what are we, what are we asking uh, the youth leaders to do? Um, and I, and I think that's one piece that just really has to, to drive home because a large group Bible study talk is, is good. Um, but I think even better is, is going down on that discipleship piece, drilling down on that. Yeah. One, one last question I'll ask, and then we'll let you go, Abigail. It, and it, it's a good follow-up, I think, to what Ben's just saying about the practical, right? And discipleship is, would you give us, uh, some of your best recommendations for, and you address this in the book, how to speak the truth in love and, you know, my understanding is that in today's world, we try to speak with love, assuming that love, I think, sometimes is misdefined as affirmation, right? Whatever you want to lean into, I'm just going to affirm that. That's my way to love you as a mom or love you as a dad or, or love you as a youth worker. Um, give us some guidance here, just from where you sit as you've navigated through this yourself in your teaching, uh, your own personal story with your kids. I think you have four kids. Um Help us understand a little bit of the best way. Give us some. Give us some marching orders, right, for speaking the truth in love. <laughs> um. Well, you know, speaking the truth in love is like how to do that well is a question that preoccupies the majority of my thought life these days. So, I think it's something that um, I don't. You know, again, I don't have this like exact formula figured out on how to do it because in some in some respects because I do think there has to be this kind of responsiveness to the person and it can be hard to abstractly generalize about what would be the best approach in a given in a given situation right I think there in, in that sense there has to be some discern I think it, it's more about discernment discernment with the guidance of principles that are clarified and in place and rooted in scripture so principles about anthropology, um, principles about the gospel, principles, you know, that um, maybe even principles about thinking about what stage of development a person is in, you know, whether are you talking to an adult, are you talking to an adolescent, are you talking to a child, right? So I think articulating guiding principles, but then also having this very prayerful discernment about how to apply those principles in specific situation is really what we need in, um, and how to how to proceed there um so i think it's important to you know establish i don't know sometimes when i think about i think about this whole phenomenon and i think so much of it arises from this goes back to kind of where we started the interview about young people not truly believing that they are loved as they are that they don't have to like become a particular thing in order to be loved. Like a love, you don't have to curate this ideal self in order to be loved. Um, and so I think that they can't just hear that because it sounds like a platitude. They have to feel that in their interactions with people. But at the same time, that I think it's possible to clearly communicate in word and action to a young person that I. I'm on your side and I care about you no matter what, and I'm committed to your good. But also, especially as an adult, to hold certain 
certain boundaries, right? To disagree in love at times. Um, that I also think that that, that that is really important to be able to say, you know, I, I'm walking with you in this process of discernment and that, and that might involve disagreement at times because I care about your ultimate good. Um, because I think young people can hear from someone, something they don't want to hear if they know that person loves them. Oh, that's right? a good word. Yep. And like, if that's not there, then like, that's just the foundation. Right. Um, but it's not actually, I don't think it's actually merciful to, I don't think the affirmation pathway is the merciful pathway. I actually think it's in some ways a cop-out, right? It's, it's a way for us not to do the hard thing, which is to disagree in love or to kind of hold a boundary that, that a young person is pushing against. But that's what young people are supposed to do developmentally. They're supposed to be pushing against boundaries, right? Sometimes they're pushing because they want to find out where the boundary is. They want someone to step up and say, you know, actually here, here's what the truth is. You know, they're kind of floundering around for that. Um, there's so much now in our time that's left up to choice and individual decision that I think is paralyzing, right? I think we kind of have this phenomenon of like, you have to decide everything. Like, you know, when I was growing up, it was like, you kind of have to figure out whether, you know, what your sexual orientation might be, but your gender was like figured out. That wasn't something you had to question or ruminate or figure out or discern. But now that's also up for grabs, right? So this kind of total uprooting and unsettling of identity is actually really anxiety producing. So it's not loving to just kind of follow someone along that path that has no boundaries in it um, when they're kind of searching and fumbling around for clarity, right? I think clarity is is merciful. Mm -hmm. um, I like the use of the, I like the use of that word merciful and discernment, prayer, sensitivity. I mean, you're talking about the pastoral approach that we all need to have, and and I love you know I was thinking back to some things you've written in the book here, in your chapter on wholeness that even in talking about pronouns, you know you don't want to assent to an untruth, but rather uh, participate in giving them the truth rather than in participating in a lie. That seems to be you know, one of the most common areas that people would be able to apply what you're saying here, but certainly more than that. And I and I hope people are hearing what you're saying about relationships. Um, a lot of, lot of good, good and true advice in there. So listen, thank you so much for your time. Um, we are recommending this book to everyone. Ben, you would recommend it, right? You and I got talking about this when I was up in Canada you know, just say a word to youth workers about the Genesis of Gender, Abigail's book. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm i an avid reader, so I recommend The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, but I know that most people won't read it. Carl Truman, yeah. <laughs> Carl Truman's book. I think he knows I, that I, too, he, yeah. People, well, just because it is, it's, yeah. it's uh, a bit bigger and stuff. I will, um, I will also recommend the Genesis of Gender, and I know that you know, I might just have to buy more copies at Christmas here and just start getting them out because I know that it's people can pick it up and read it for parents and and for youth leaders and stuff. It's really yeah, it's a page turner in that way. It's it's really readable, I, I should say, and it has a, a lot of good practical stuff. But the other thing that we that we already mentioned today, too, is it helps it helps us clear some confusion because, Abigail, you do such a great job unpacking a lot of these terms um, a lot of the history. I mean, I'm just learning a ton through it. So yeah, I highly recommended it for sure. Yeah. And, and a lot of research as well on mm -hmm. uh, where the ideology is led and, and how perhaps it's failing, um, you know, some of the data that's coming out now. So it's so good. Yeah, I would, I would echo that. Abigail, thanks for writing it. We're going to recommend it. We do uh, uh, groups online that read books together, and we're going to recommend that youth workers do this perhaps with your Youth ministry staff, one of the things we heard last week at our symposium from some of the leaders was, how do we get our volunteers to have a, a good and succinct understanding of these issues? And, you know, because you have to have that in order to respond correctly uh, to the honor and glory of God. So this is one that we would highly recommend, the genesis of gender. So Abigail Favalli, thank you so much for your good work. And uh, are you working on anything new we can ask you about without 
pulling back the curtain and when you shouldn't? Um, I actually am working on some fiction right now. Okay. Mm. Um, but fiction is slow, it's slow and steady, steadily okay. writing some fiction. But um, I am hoping to write more nonfiction as well on kind of the Christian understanding of gender and especially this positive vision. You know, because yes. I think this book spends a lot of time um, in you know trying to do this kind of comparative critique which I think is really needed but I think also we also need to look more deeply at right what is the the compelling Christian response and how can we develop and articulate that yeah cool yeah well thanks we'll look forward to that and uh, I hope sometime we're able to to have you back um, and you know I hope my foggy brain today didn't wasn't wasn't a uh, a negative here uh, after that symposium last week man my head is just spinning still so Abigail Favalli, The Genesis of Gender, A Christian Theory. Again, we highly recommend it. Go to cpyu.org. Check out the player for this episode of the podcast. Scroll down and you'll find links to everything, including Abigail's uh, homepage, too, which is, uh, which is online. You can, you can uh, find out what she's doing. Thanks so much, everybody, for joining us for this episode of Youth Culture Matters, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks for joining us for Youth Culture Matters, a podcast from the Center for Parent Youth Understanding. If you'd like to learn more about today's youth culture, visit our website at cpyu.org. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, email us at podcast at cpyu.org.